as normally on a normal week, you know, you would come to church and kind of feel energized and whatever. Man, I just feel like on Sundays now, like I need this. I really, really need to come in and, and have people speak into me um, and hear you guys sing. Um, and it just feel, builds my soul up. So I hope the same thing is true for you that can be here. And those that are online, I just hope you're encouraged. Uh, we'll be in Hebrews 11. We're going to continue to plow through. Um, so we'll be in Hebrews 11. Uh, today, and I just wanted to probably remind or maybe try to remind people or remind you all um, that uh, ministry is still happening through the sanctuary, at the sanctuary, with the sanctuary. Many of you have been doing so many things over the summer, and we got a little disjointed. I just wanted to kind of remind everyone of what God's been doing through you and what we've been able to do. Uh, one of those things was we served at the Friends of North Richmond, um, and I'm not exaggerating, they served. 10,000 families probably during this time, food, and um, uh, as people lost their, their jobs, their income, and many of us had an opportunity to go and volunteer there, uh, especially in, in the end of June and July, so man, thank you guys for serving really well um, uh, out there. We also put together back in May, which seems forever ago, we put together bags, little kids' bags, activity bags, and uh, gave away a couple of hundred of those, several hundred of those. Um, hygiene kits. We put together some of those that were given away. So y'all have done just a great job um, continuing to minister during this time. And I wanted to remind you of those things. Um, this Thursday, we've got another kind of exciting announcement. We want you to join us on Facebook as we talk to you about more ministry things that, that God's going to be doing uh, here with us and through us. I also want to remind you or tell you that on your seats, if you're here with us, you have these little cards. And um, Ministry is happening, life is going on, um, worship and whatnot, and church, Bible study, all kinds of great things here, and uh, this is something that you can physically take with you and invite people to be a part of it. Um, there's two different invitations on here. One is an in-person invitation, one is an online invitation. If people aren't comfortable being in the room, uh, we've got all kinds of things online we want to encourage you to take part in. So uh, there's also, uh, the other thing I want to tell you is online right now, there's um, TSF at Home. And that's on the website. It's got everything you need for a Sunday morning. So if you ever have to be home or whatever, uh, you'll find everything there um, on Sunday morning, including some invitations, digital invitations that you can use um, to invite people digitally. So we want to just put all those things in front of you guys to um, invite people into what God's doing here, right? So Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 23 through 29, we're going to be looking at Moses. We've kind of looked at these obscure people that maybe we don't know a lot about. We're going to get into Moses today. I want to start with this question, we'll kind of end with this question. But the big challenge for us today is what would your life be like if you lived for another place? What would your life be like if you lived for another place? And you're like, Pastor Joe, I don't know what that means. You're talking preacher talk right now. You know, what does that mean? Talk plainly. All right, so just to help you remember, do you remember when you were in school? Maybe some of our students or kids or whatever you can remember and you're like your your junior year in school and your last class is geometry or trigonomics or some terrible awful math class that nobody wants to go to anyway did I just make up a class trigonomics that's not a real thing is it okay I just made it up obviously I dropped out of math so I don't know math classes and you're sitting there and it's like 2 30 what are you are you living for that class I can't wait to go to trigonomics today I love this class, and I just can't wait to be here all day. I'd just spend all day here if I could. No, you're living for 245 when the bell rings. You're living for 310. Anything outside of school, you're living for it. The weekend, what's happening that night, the game later on, seeing your girlfriend, seeing your boyfriend, going to a job, anything but trigonomics, right? That's what it means to live for another place. Do you get it? 
Because we've all been there. We all have that experience. What would your life be like if you were living for another place? That's what I want you to kind of have in your head today. So our attention today is drawn to Moses. Um, He is one of the big three um, when you talk to a Jewish person. And again, remember, this book is written to Jewish Christians, people who were brought up in Judaism or attracted to Judaism, um, and now they're they're converted to Christianity or they're, they're thinking about it or they're wondering if they should stay in Christianity. So it's these Jewish people. Um, and he's really one of the big three. This would be like um, somebody coming to us and saying, hey, pay attention, Jay-Z and Beyonce. Look at them and live like them. Moses is that guy. He, he's that guy that, the, that this author wants you to look at and see and say, look what Moses did. Live like him. So it's a big gun kind of example for us today as he brings in Moses. So he draws our attention to Moses, but really not the details of his story, because you would have to summarize the entire book of Exodus and Deuteronomy to really tell Moses' story. Um, So he's not trying to get us into the details so much as he wants to draw us our attention to who Moses is and what he did and how he lived, and specifically the faith that Moses had the faith that he had. So the list of people that we see as we look through Hebrews 11, and there's a bunch of them, as we look at these people, we see that some of them changed the world that they lived in. Whenever they were here, they changed their world by how they lived. Some of them changed the entire world, and I'm not exaggerating in any way. Some of them, by living a a life of faith, changed history, changed the entire world. Some of them have changed the world that we live in through faith. And so some of them changed the world of the people that lived right around them. And we read their story and we're like, oh, that's great. They live by faith. Then there's some people who directly affected our world by how they lived. And then there's some people that you're going to read about in this list. They didn't change anything that we know of. But you're going to read their story today. You and I are going to read about who they were and what they did. And maybe they didn't change anything about the world they lived in, or they haven't made much difference in the world since they passed away, but you and I are going to read their story, and they'll change your world. Their faithful living with God day by day, you're going to see it, you're going to be encouraged by it, your world's going to be changed, changed by it. I don't want you to get hung up that you're not changing the world you live in, or, or you're not changing the world after you're gone. Let's just kind of hold on to this thought. Could your faith your trust in God, and your faithfulness impact just one other person. Moses, it says here, it says, by faith, by faith, by faith, Moses did this, Moses did that, five times about Moses. If, if faith is such a big deal to God, why isn't it a bigger deal to us? If that's what God wants us to be remembered for, why isn't it a bigger deal to us? So shouldn't we welcome and ask God for opportunities to utilize our faith, to grow in our faith, to exercise our faith? Some of us, most of us, are facing some kind of a trial or a challenge or God's putting a call on your life. And you're facing it, you're going into it right now. And some of you are facing those things and you're mad about it. God, this is hard, and I don't like this, and I don't want my life to look like this, and you're bitter about it, and you're sad about it all the time, and you're upset by it all the time. That's what's kind of dominating you, so you're praying prayers like, God, just relieve me of this pressure, this problem, this pain. If you do, 
I can be more faithful. That's how we kind of approach this, right? God, if you'll make my life easier, I can be more faithful. God, just take this away from me. God, give me everything that I need. Why don't we begin to pray prayers like this? And yes, we should. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is when we just stop with those prayers. What if we move into things like this? Spirit, give me faith. When I can't see you to trust you, give me trust in you that I can't dig up from inside myself. It's got to come from somewhere else. Spirit, give me faith. Let me grow up during this time. I'm immature. Let me grow up. Don't let me stay in my immaturity through this. Grow me up during this time. Help me to hold on. Work through my doubts. Strengthen my faith. And do things in me that bring glory to your name. Challenges haven't changed. The trials haven't changed. The fear hasn't gone away. And the pain's still there. I want you to remember the only reason people are on this list at all in Hebrews chapter 11 is because they had faith. That's the determining factor that put people on this list. It's not because they were inherently amazing people, but because they were normal people who trusted in God, and then they redirected their lives and their families and their fortunes, their resources, all their dreams around the word and the promises of God. That's why they're on this list. So will just one person remember you as a person of faith? Will they remember that you suffered? Will they remember you went through pain, that you went through difficult times? Or are they going to remember, man, he or she was a person of faith? So when I get ready for Sundays, I generally kind of walk through this stuff about four times and scrub it and work it and pray and all that. And the first time I went through this, and God was showing me this part of it, I immediately had a picture of somebody in our church come to mind. I thought, oh, that's sweet, and I kind of let it go. Every time I went back to it, God just hammered me with this person in my spirit over and over again. So I don't want to embarrass anyone or call anybody out. She's actually wasn't able to be here today. But when I think of someone that I'm going to remember for being a person of faith, I think of Miss Soyla. Some of you know who Miss Soyla is? There's been, okay, so some of us don't, which is actually my point, right? She's this exceptionally faithful older woman in our church who you probably are not going to know unless you kind of get into her little world. But here's what she'll do for me regularly. And she's just a little tiny little thing, man. And she'll come up to me and she kind of, she's hard to hear me. Like I have a hard time hearing her because she talks real softly. Pastor Joe, and she'll grab my hand and she'll say, I want you to know I'm praying for you and Miss Mindy. Praying that God gives you strength. I'm praying. I'm praying that the Lord. She goes. goes this, she'll say, "I have great faith for you." And I'm like, "Miss Soyla, good, because I don't. <laughs> I struggle." Thank you for that prayer, and thank you for telling me that. You may never know who this woman is. She may pass away, be a part of our church, and you won't know. I'll remember her the rest of my life. Just a simple faith, a faithful person, who is sharing a little bit of that faith with me when I need it. Will someone remember you as being a person of faith? Just one person. That's why they're on this list. They were people of faith. Verse 23, let's jump into Moses' story. He says, uh, the author says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So it says, by faith, his parents. Now, the first thing I want to ask you is a, about the point I just made. Do you remember their names? Don't say it out loud. 
Some of you Bible nerds will know, but do you know? Moses, probably the second most famous person in Jewish history, person known all over the world outside of Judaism, Moses. Do you know his parents' names? By faith, Moses' parents, that's what it says, did something pretty amazing. They're just normal people. I want to point that out again. They were slaves. They're just normal people. Maybe he's a brick maker. We know that she worked as a, as a wet nurse, effectively, is what she did. So they're just normal, everyday people, oppressed people. Here's their big idea. So Pharaoh has said, there's too many Jews, no more Jewish children, kill the Jewish babies. That's kind of the deal. He's afraid they're going to rise up and take over Egypt. And so when a baby was born, you were supposed to infanticide. You're supposed to kill it. So mom and dad see uh, Moses, and they say that he was a beautiful baby. Most of us think our babies are beautiful. Jordan wasn't. We had bad pictures of him when his baby. I'm just kidding, like E.T. He's all smashed up and everything. Most babies are beautiful, though, right? This is not what that text says, and it's kind of a bummer that it uses that word. It, it's this idea that Moses' parents looked at him and saw something different about him, that, that they saw something unique about him that they couldn't even explain is kind of the idea. So they see this about him, and they're like, we have to do something about this. Like, we can't kill this baby. Not only is it morally wrong, now, now we see that God's got something for this child. We, we can't, that wouldn't be faithful for us to do. So here's their big plan, right? The easiest thing to do would have been to follow the law. I mean, emotionally difficult, logistically easier. Just obey. Do what the law says to do. Get rid of this baby. But here's their big idea. They put their baby in a homemade raft. Have you ever seen the Nile River, by the way? And they float their baby, <laughs> three-month-old baby, in a raft, a homemade raft basket, to a, effectively a young teenage girl, older teenage girl, who they hope is sympathetic. This is the plan. It seems so incredibly sloppy and dangerous and crazy. But really, when you kind of think about it, when you strip it all down, this idea of floating your baby in a raft and praying that a sympathetic young woman whose dad is killing babies will choose your baby. There's something really simply faithful about that, too. See what I'm saying? Like, when it all stripped down, at some point or another, you go, this is all I know to do. I, I don't know, there is no perfect plan, God. I've weighed all the options, I've counted all the costs, you know, I've done the pros and the cons. I don't know what to do. You said, don't kill babies, so we're not going to do that. We're going to trust you with this. There's something unique about this child. I don't know how you're going to do it, we're going to trust that you're going to do it. And they float their baby down the river. Sometimes all you do is you do what you can do and you pray hard and you take faithful actions and you trust God. Repeatedly, that is the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You get a word from the Lord, you take that word in, you do something, all that you can do faithfully, you pray, you trust the Lord. That seems to be the picture of faith we get here over and over again. The author wants us to see that Amram and Yoshebed by the way, that Amram and Yoshebed's faith and their faithfulness is part of what shaped the faith of Moses. 
Do you not think Moses knew that story at some point? We do, so he must have. That he knew the story about mom and dad's faithfulness? How do you think that impacted his big decisions? His hard choices that he had to make? Mom and dad's faithfulness and trust in the Lord shaped Moses' faith, who then changed the world. So here, I think, was the point of verse 23. You and I are called to be faithful to God like Amram and Yoshebed were. It's then God's business if he chooses to use you like Moses. Some of us want to be Moses all the time. We want to be recognized for our faithfulness and see people see us and pat us on the back and tell us how good we're doing. That is not the point. The point is that we're faithful and we risk things as God calls us to do them. And if God chooses to use us like Moses, that's his business. Our job is to be faithful. So we see that here immediately about his parents. Verse 24, we get into Moses. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, the temporary pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking for the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. There's so much here, okay? We've got to get through it. Um, so again, what set Moses apart here was not that he was an incredibly moral person. He was actually fairly immoral, um, which we'll see that in a second. But what set him apart was his faith. And the faith that he had made a difference for the whole world. How does a man like Moses turn his back on everything in Egypt? And you're like, well, it's not that big a deal. It's a huge deal. It's a world power. He was going to be in the royal family, right? In Egypt, he had everything at his disposal. Everything that you think you need in this world to be happy, he had it. What would cause a man like Moses to turn his back on that? Everything you think you need to be happy in this world, Moses said no to it. How can he do that? He did it by faith, not because he was moral or better than anyone else. He did it by faith. Now, here's the problem when you read Hebrews chapter 11, and in particular as we get to Moses. It feels like the author is glossing over everybody's problems. Like, it doesn't say Abraham was a liar. It should, but it doesn't. It points us to his faithful actions. It also doesn't say that Moses was a murderer, but he was. It just points us to his faithful actions. So I'm kind of reading this, if you read it from a very, you know, negative point of view, you're like, this is like a bait and switch. He's not giving us the whole picture here. Why, why is the author not telling us about these horrible things, these atrocities that these people committed, or at least the character flaws that they had, instead of just telling us to look at their faith? Why is he doing that? Here's why I think he's doing that, and there's several reasons, but I'm going to try to boil it down here. This is why. I think because the author wants you to see that those mistakes and sins and failures are not what defines those people. The author isn't looking back 4,000 years into history and saying, look who these losers were. Look at what terrible people there were. He's like, because they're Jewish. He's writing to Jewish people. He can't lie to them. They know the story. You know, you and I are the ones that are unfamiliar with it. You're like, I didn't know Abraham or Moses killed somebody. Read Exodus, you know. They knew all these stories, so he can't pull the wool over their eyes. So he's not trying to fool them. He's got another point to make. And that other point is 
that those failures and sins and mistakes in the past are not what define these people. So here's good news for you. They don't define you either. And you need to let some, some of you in this room, you got to let that stuff go. Your sins and mistakes and failures of the past, that is not the grid at which God is looking at you. And you need to let yourself go in those areas. Then you've got other people you need to let go. Some of you are looking at others and going, man, you're forever defined by your biggest mistake or the last one that I remember. And we're holding it over people. We need to let that go. That's not how God sees them. What gives you the right to treat them and see them like that? We need to let that go for people. There's, there wasn't perfection in these people, but there was progression in their faith, right? That's what he wants us to see. They weren't perfect people. They were progressing in their trust with God, their walk with God on a regular basis. So he wants to see the progression in them. I want you to think back to Moses. Not only does he murder someone, his very first conversation with God was an argument. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? God speaks to him in a burning bush and he argues with God. So he argues with God about going back to Egypt, and God says, listen, go back, I'm commanding you. And God says, I am is sending you, that's God's name, right? We try to figure out what it means. I am is sending you, I am will be with you. So Moses, in his halting, stuttering, stammering, he more than likely had some kind of speech impediment, because he talks about it a couple of times in the text. In his stammering way, He faithfully does what God told him to do, goes back to Egypt. It's so interesting to me that God doesn't see Moses and cancel him. He doesn't hear Moses' complaints and go, done, next, Aaron, Aaron, step up, right? (laughs) He doesn't go to choice B immediately. He looks inside, he looks inside of Moses' heart, what does he see? Faith, trust. What does Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 says? What does God do? He rewards those who seek him. Right? God looks inside of his heart and he sees faith in him. And God draws along sight of him. He welcomes him. And he responds to faith with more of himself. Man, that should encourage all of us. As God calls us to do things and we stutter and we stammer and we argue with God, God looks inside, I see that faith and I'm going to encourage that. I'm going to draw it out. I'm going to give you more. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to faithfully walk with you as you faithfully walk with me. God knows, man, right? We don't have to be afraid of him as he calls us to do these things that we wrestle with, we struggle with. That's the point that I think is being made here. So what we see here with Moses as he is a murderer who God calls to go do his business and he responds With faith, we see grace. Grace is not an excuse to sin more, but it does recreate you, and it gives you an opportunity for a fresh start. I really think it's okay to kind of think about grace as like a do-over every day. I think that's okay. I think that's a good biblical way to think about it. Grace is a do-over every day. It's a fresh start. You can be a person, a new person of faith today, even though you weren't yesterday. That's called grace. Think about it, why ultimately, why do we murder or hate or lie or cheat or steal or manipulate other people in the first place? It's because we lack faith. We don't trust God's words. We don't trust his ways are best for us. So here's what I want you to do. If you've got paper or your phone or your home, you know, you get your phone out or a piece of paper. Here's what I want to challenge you to do, everybody to do something about this. I want you to think about the last seven days, okay? 
And I want you to write down just one way, just one, where you acted like God wasn't telling the truth about something. Where did you act? Just one thing that you did where you act, you behave like God's really not telling the truth about that. When did you lie or cheat or gossip or hate or manipulate someone? And at the root of it is, you don't really believe God will do what he said he will do. Just one. Probably have multiple. Just give me one. Give yourself one. Nobody's going to see this. Now, which of us wants to take that piece of paper or our phone or whatever it is and walk around the rest of the week with that being on it? Hi, I lied last week because I didn't trust God. I cheated somebody last week because I didn't trust God. I manipulated my family because I really don't trust God. I griped all week long because I don't trust God. Who wants to be identified by that, right? Who wants that to be the thing that people see about us and that we see about ourselves that we're projecting out to people? Here's what I'll tell you. Don't. It's called grace. Don't walk around this week like that's what's defining you. Look ahead to this next week, to starting today, this afternoon, and ask, how can I act faithfully in a similar situation this week? In other words, how can I trust God with that this week when it comes to me again? And this is anything. Your entertainment life, your sex life, your food life, your relational life, anything, any area of life where you have acted like you have not trusted God where can you this week trust God? It's pretty simple. We do these things, we act out because we don't trust God. We trust our ways over God's ways. There's grace for you today to live like you trust God. Let's do it. Just like Moses had that opportunity, you and I have that opportunity by grace. Verse 26 to the end of this little section says Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not uh, fearing the, the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the, the, the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Another common trait. We looked at some things that all these people have in common in Hebrews 11. So there's another common trait here uh, that people have. So we talked about the fact that these people have faith. They trust God. Uh, that they are faithful in their actions. They don't just talk about it. They do things about it. That the object of their faith, they're trusting in God, not religion, not being good, not morals. Here's the other thing that we need to see is common among these people, and that is this, that not only does faith, do we risk things for faith, being faithful is costly. That there is a price to pay when we follow God, for all of us. And that faith pays that price no matter what it is. Now, it may take us a while to get there, but that faith leans toward, I will pay that if that's what it takes to follow you. If that's what it means to know you, love you, and trust you, I will pay that cost. Abraham and Moses' parents, it was about their children. 
risking their, their children's lives. Moses, it says here, that he gave up things in order to receive some other things. There are costs to trusting the promises of God. There are. There are, there, there are costs that we pay to trusting God's word. Jesus talked about this. Y'all, we've so sanitized Jesus. We want this picture of him playing soccer with little kids, you know, and that's like how we want to see him all the time. We've, we've just stripped him of anything that, that the New Testament really tells us about him. You know what he said over and over and over again? Really take out the Gospel of John. It's unique. Matthew, Mark, Luke. He says this stuff over and over and over again. Count the cost. Don't follow. As a matter of fact, he basically what he says all the time is, don't follow me unless you're going to pay the cost. Don't come to me for stuff. Don't come to me for riches. Don't come to me for fame. Don't come to me for rewards in the afterlife. If you can't pay what it costs to follow me, he basically says, don't follow me. Count the cost. He says if you're plowing a field, one of his illustrations, you're plowing a field, which you and I would go, oh, that's terrible manual labor. That's how they lived. They were agrarian culture, right? So he's like, everything your life depends on, leave it, and follow me. And if you're going to keep your hand on the plow, stay in the field. Don't follow me. Like, he's really harsh about it. Count the cost. Leave the field unplowed. Give God all that you have, whether it's a half a penny or you're a rich young ruler. Give everything to him. And follow him. What do you gain? Like, okay, cost-benefit analysis here. If that's the cost, what do I get? Jesus is going to say, you get intimacy with God. You get to call God your father, and God will call you his friend. The Holy Spirit of God will live in you, and talk to you, and encourage you, and tell you that you're loved, and tell you that you're valuable, and tell you that you're not the dirty sinner that the enemy wants to make you think you are. That's what you get. And we're like, well, that's, what else? Right? Isn't that the truth? That's not a big enough deal for most of us to pay that price. I am not going to give up the comfort of my giant house and working 60 hours a week and making more money than any human being should ever have, God, because that's what makes me happy. What are you going to give me in place of that? God says, me? Sorry, I'm going to go make some more money. There is a cost to be paid for following God, but you get... God. Trusting in God so that your faith becomes unshakable. Heaven for eternity, real life here, the renewal of your soul, you get all that. We just don't value it appropriately, right? Some of you are at that stage right now. It says that Moses considered, he carefully thought about the riches of Egypt versus being treated poorly like the slaves that he was related to as a Jew. He, he balanced those two things out and chose Christ and being abused over the riches and position of Egypt. But he carefully thought about it. Some of you are in that debate stage right now. You're carefully thinking about something. The world is presenting you with something. Life is presenting you with like pleasures and joys and, and more than we should probably ever think about having. And the world is like offering us all this stuff all the time. And some of you are at that point where you're really balancing this, man. Should I do this? Should I do this? I want to encourage you, that piece of paper you had or on your phone, wherever you're at, 
I want you to write down that thing that you're debating in your heart right now. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go this way? Should I go that way? I want you to write that thing down. Then I want you to spend the next seven days scouring scripture and finding every promise that God has already made to you about that thing. Don't make a decision until you do this. And then see if you're okay with giving that up because God has already promised you certain things. See what I'm saying? We don't usually weigh the promises of God. We just weigh having the thing or not having the thing. God's made promises to you. And this is anything. You can't make anything off limits. Right? This is not a real exercise if there are certain things you won't let God speak into. So it's got to be anything at all. Nothing can be off limits. It can be food, children, spouse, entertainment, your self-image, your relational life, anything. What has God already said to me about that? Would I give it up if God asked for it because he's made promises to me about that thing? See what I'm saying? It gets kind of elementary at some point or another, but this is what we need to get back to, evaluating our lives and our choices according to the promises of God. So he said no to the temporary pleasures here because his heart was already being drawn to greater pleasure somewhere else. He was already more pleased with the promises of God than he was with what he was seeing here. How does he do this? He says that he sees the unseen Christ. That's what the scripture says. How does he able, how is Moses able to say no to what's right in front of him? Everything the human heart could ever desire. Who says no to that? He could say no to that because he was seeing something that was unseen. And you're like, well, how, how can I do that, man? I'm facing the loss of my job or super sick or, man, there's a great opportunity I can have, you know, more than I could ever imagine. How can I take my eyes off these things and live my life according to what's not seen. How did he do it? It says very plainly that he saw Christ. That he looked somehow in faith and he saw the promises of God in this person, this Messiah that Jesus or that God was going to bring someday. He sees Christ. So I'm going to run through these things. How does that happen for us? How can we set our eyes on Christ? Ready? First thing I want to do, I want you to look back at Jesus. I don't know if you remember the first time Jesus pops on the scene in the Bible John the Baptist is there. Do you remember what John the Baptist is? I can see it in my head. It's like Jesus walks up over a hill and John's baptizing in the river Jordan and he looks up and he sees Jesus coming. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We don't look at Jesus like that anymore, do we? He's my buddy, he's my pal, he's my co-pilot. He's my boyfriend in most of our worship songs. Right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Put your eyes on Jesus. Have him in your head. He died for you. He bled for you. He gave himself for you. He sacrificed himself for you to get rid of the ugliest sins you can imagine so you can have life eternal with God. Behold the Lamb of God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. So let's do that first. Second thing you can do. The passions of your heart have to be redone undone and re-put back together. That does not mean you still don't want some things here on this earth. We are creaturely creatures. We are flesh and blood. There's things here we're going to want, and that's fine. But, they're there, but that those things would be the deepest motivations of our heart, that those would be the things we put our hope in for joy, for life. God says you have to undo those things. That can't be what your, your greatest pleasures are found in. So we have to stoke new fires Put out old fires of passions and light new fires of passions in our hearts. Third thing, your goals in life. What are your goals in life? Why are you here? You ever thought about that? 
Why are you here? Now, you may not be able to answer God's view of that, like God would say, here's why you're here. I don't know. But can't we set goals in life that honor God? Can't we say, here's why I'm here. I'm 50, and for the next 25 years of my life, here's why I'm here. I'm 20, for the next 50 years of my life, here's why I'm here. Can't we do that? Can't we set goals for our lives that honor God? One way you keep Christ in front of you is making sure that your life goals honor God, that you have life goals in your life that bring him pleasure, that please his heart. What are your life goals? Why are you here? Put those in alignment with pleasing God. Next thing, when you have a 50-50 decision, let Christ be the determiner of those things. We all hit these places where it's like, we don't know what to do. I don't know what the best way to go here. I just got to choose. I have to make a decision. And it's a 50-50 place. What if we begin to ask some question like, I don't know which way to go. Which one of these choices will show everyone watching that God is great? Which one of these will best reveal to the world the greatness of God? I'll choose that one. Maybe another determiner here would be like, how will this stretch me to follow God anywhere? Sometimes we're 50-50 because one's a lot more comfortable. It's a lot safer. It's a lot, a lot more guaranteed. What if the other one is more God-honoring because it stretches you further? Because it strips away the guarantees? Because it's uncomfortable? But it makes you stretch and trust and faith in God. Maybe that's another thing you could line up. Which one lines up best with God's word? Do you ever ask that question? Has God said something? Hmm, maybe we should do that one, right? And sometimes choices line up better with God's word than other choices do. So let Christ be the determiner of 50-50 decisions. Future grace, have your eyes set ahead. Don't live for this world. It's all passing away. All of it is. It's all. We're dying. Everything's going away. Quit hoping in this place. Quit making your decisions based on what brings you happiness right now in this place. It's all going to go away one day. Put your eyes on the future. Keep Christ and his promised future in your heart, in your eyes, in your mind. Last thing, we're going to wrap up. Have you ever noticed that God asked for really weird things? So he goes to Noah, who's on our list here in Hebrews 11. What does he ask him to do? Build a boat. Not just any boat, right? Like the biggest boat that you can imagine by hand, right? And potentially in a world that had never had a boat? Build me a boat out of gopher wood. I still don't know what that is, right? Okay, God, I'll build you a boat out of gopher wood. Abraham, go to a place that I'll show you. Who's making travel plans like that? Go to a place that I will show you. Just start walking. Go that way. Weird. Like, the way that God does this stuff. Abraham, take your kid up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Real knife, real fire, real wood, real kid. Sacrifice him. Elevate the younger son over the older son. To Moses, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt. Here's how you're going to get out, Moses. You ready? Great plan. Moses like, we run away, right? Nope. Kill a lamb, eat it, and spread the blood around your door, your door uh, frame. 
really, God? We could just run, you know? <laughs> the car's warmed up, we could just go. The camel's ready to go, you know? God asks for strange things, doesn't he? Strange ways. Trust. Faith. Do you believe? We were just talking about this before church. Do you believe that God sees things, knows things, has made things, and will call things into being that you cannot comprehend? That gives me chills to even say it. Have you ever, if, this, is tr- this is the basis of our trust in the Lord. This is the basis of faith. He asked for weird, he asked for big things and weird things and strange ways. Do we believe, do I believe that God sees things, knows things, he has made things, and he will call things into being that I cannot comprehend? Now listen, we've seen this, and, and just as personally as I can get here, I have seen that happen. I've seen God do those kinds of things. And man, this may sound trite to you, but it's a big deal. Uh, We have had checks come to us from people we don't know paying bills that we, there's no way we can pay them. Money has just shown up. I've seen that. We've had debt forgiven. We've had medicine provided. We've had some of our two children corrected in ways I have changed, Mindy's been changed, forgiveness has been given. I've seen hard hearts broken and lost sinners saved. Impossible things. I've seen God do the impossible, and he is just calling us to walk into this unknown future with this God who shows up over and over and over again. That's faith. I don't want to be cuckoo about that. I don't think that's the whole part of the message. What I want you to see is just support this principle. God is moving thousands of unseen things around to fulfill his promises to you. Do you believe that? Because scripture says that. Your life backs that up. God is moving thousands of unseen things around to provide for you so his promises are true our only response to that is trust. That's it. J.C. Ryle, some of you may know him, pastor from back in the day, author. He talked about people in church and why we struggle with faith, because it is a struggle. And he looks around his own church as a pastor, Christianity in general, he's like, why do so many people in church struggle to walk by faith, to trust in God? And he said it's because so many of us go through religious rituals, church, etc., communion, whatever. We say we believe, but really, in our hearts, we prefer the world over God. He says this. He says they don't believe and they have no faith. Then he explains that. And he says this. He says, in short, they don't put implicit confidence in the words that God has written and spoken, so they don't act on them. That's it. Very simply, that's it. We don't put implicit confidence in the words that God has spoken and written, so why would we act on them? We don't really thoroughly believe in hell, so we don't flee from it. 
We don't believe in heaven, so we don't seek it. We don't believe in the guilt of sin, so we don't turn from it. We don't believe in the holiness of God, so we don't fear him. We don't believe in our need of Christ, so we don't trust him and we don't love him. Here it is. They don't feel confidence in God, so they don't risk anything for him. What would your life look like, like Moses, if you were living by what you cannot see? You bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to really wrestle with that on the way out today. Pastor Jared's going to wrap us up. What would my life look like if I lived in faith in what's not seen? What would be different? What would your relational life look like, your financial life look like, your parenting look like, how you uh, deal with your spouse or your, your children? What would that look like? Your work, difficulties at work, problem people at work. What would my life look like if I live like I'm living for something I can't even see? Then you have, maybe you're wrestling with the decision What's that decision going to look like if you choose faith and trusting God over temporary pleasures? What will this decision look like if I choose just to trust God instead of choosing what makes me happy right now, what feels comfortable? Maybe God brings both of them to you, or maybe your temporary pleasures are the very thing that are keeping you from having faith in God. You ever thought about that? God, give us faith like Moses had. Thank you for this amazing example of a man who lived by faith, not perfectly, Lord, but he lived in what he couldn't see, by faith in the trust, the promises of God. And he made choices based on those things. He left things behind. He paid the cost to follow you in faith. Give us the strength to do that, Lord. If we've not called out for you, if there's someone watching or in the room right now, they've never called out in faith in Jesus pray they take that first step today. Thank you for this encouragement. In your name we pray. Amen. Pastor Jared. Good morning. Just a few things to continue to